during my sophomore year of high school, I woke up every morning at 5.30 in order to spend 30 minutes reading the Bible and praying before I got ready for school. And that time was fruitful. It was the first time in my life that I began to see God as someone who loved me. First time I started to feel that the word of God was alive and active. And I started to read about love and forgiveness and life. And it was the same exact time that I began to struggle with depression for the first time. And at that time I experienced comfort and acceptance in God's presence. So while it was a sacrifice to get up at 5.30 in the morning, those times were really precious to me. And I desired my friends to experience this life, so I'm sure I came across really pushy and judgmental as I awkwardly told them that they needed to read the Bible too. But I had this deep desire that they would know God as I knew God. It was such a sweet season. It was also quite short because summer came along. And with it came late nights watching every single episode of Wonder Years on Nick at Night and sleeping in until our hours of the morning. And yet, as I still followed Jesus, I began to feel this pang of guilt in my consciousness that I should have been doing better at reading the Bible, that the few times a week were not good enough, that I, as a Christian, was not doing well because I was not getting up at 5.30 in the morning to read scripture and pray. And everywhere I turned around, I felt like everyone was saying, you need to read your Bible, youth group meetings, church services, FCA meetings, read your Bible, pray for 30 minutes and in the morning, because that's when Jesus did it. And if you check your list off your list, you're going to be okay. And as I did read scripture, I began to see that there were activities and actions that were pleasing to God and those that were not. And I started to search for what it would be like to be the good girl and to follow God. I sought those things out and I tried to change. But the more I tried, the more I knew that I couldn't do it. I learned that if you hold your tongue and don't swear, if you don't drink alcohol, if you dress modestly, if you're just perfect, sweet, humble, kind, quiet, then you will be accepted as a Christian woman. Then you are good enough. But I have a temper. I have four little sisters. And I used to scream at them, and I would hit them. And one time, when I was 15 or 16, I left a stinging handprint on my seven-year-old sister's back. And I was horrified by my sin. And I vowed never to hit anybody again. And through my guilt, I, I didn't hit them again. And in my shame, I've, I've avoided spanking my children, terrified of the wrath that I know that is inside of me. And there's this thought, if only I was better at following Jesus, if only I spent that time with him, maybe this would not be here. Maybe I would have myself under control. And so I was a perfectionist. still am. And as humans, we tend to view ourselves either one or two ways. Perfectionists like me. I'm going to work my butts off to prove to everybody that I'm good enough because I'm terrified of them seeing that I'm not. Or we see ourselves as failures. I know I'm not good enough. I've been told I'm not good enough. I've proved myself over and over and over again that I, I'm never gonna measure up, so I quit. I quit trying. And we live out our lives on this two ends of this spectrum, striving really hard to be perfect and failing or not trying at all. 
And we're all desperate. We're all desperate to escape these realities. In our scripture in Luke this week, we meet these two people on these two ends of the spectrum, two people groups. First, there are the Jewish tax collectors. And we were introduced to them last week in our passage when Jesus met Levi, the tax collector, and said, follow me. And Jesus sat down and met with a whole bunch of tax collectors and other people. And he ate with them and had fellowship with them. And tax collectors were despised in their culture because they were seen as people who had turned away from God to serve Rome. They were the ones who had failed. They were cheating their fellow Jews. They were on the outskirts of society. And I figure they thought, hey, our reputation is this bad. Why not just live in it? The failures. And into the scene comes the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And they come in and they are the ones who are like, I can keep the law and then some. I will write my own laws to go alongside it in order to prove that I am good enough. These are the perfectionists. And they come in and they see Jesus eating with the tax collectors and sinners. And they say, why are you eating with these people? Why are you eating with the sinners? And Jesus said, I did not come to heal the, I didn't, uh, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And if you want to hear more about those verses, you can listen to Adam's sermon last week. But this is where we pick up. This is the context. They're in the middle of this, of this meal together, this feast. And the Pharisees come creeping along, stalking them and saying, what are you doing? And after Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance, we have these verses. And the, te- the Pharisees say to him, John's disciples often fast and pray. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say, the old is better. All right, let's unfold this. The Pharisees are asking, why aren't your people fasting? We're fasting. Fasting is an interesting thing. It's only commanded once in the law. And that was supposed to happen on the Day of Atonement. It was practiced at other times. But it was only commanded to happen for the people of Israel on the Day of Atonement when they were to repent of their sins and turn to God and God provide atonement for those sins. It was a time of mourning, a time of repentance, It was sad. It was acknowledging, taking a good look at yourself and acknowledging your sin. And the Pharisees said, we can do that. In fact, we can do that two times a week. So on Mondays and Thursdays, they fasted completely. Every single Monday and Thursday. So 104 days out of the year, they did not eat. And we can find in Matthew 6, 
evidence that they did not just not eat. They went around moping and groaning. Oh, I'm so, woe is me. I'm fasting today because I'm repenting and I'm turning towards God. They knew what fasting should look like. And they're saying, if these tax collectors are really your disciples, they need to be fasting too. They need to be proving it. They need to be showing us that they are different. And frankly, I kind of understand the Pharisee's sentiment. Because if someone has cheated me, I want to see them grieve their sin. <laughs> I want them to come apologize, beg me forgiveness, maybe suffer a little bit for their wrongs. This is not okay, but this is what I feel. <laughs> I understand. But Jesus responds to these religiously pious Jews who are so focused on their own attitudes and their own actions. And he says to them, can you make, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? In other words, if you're at a wedding, you don't fast like you're at a funeral. If you are coming to celebrate life, you're not going to sit and weep and mourn. No, you bring out the roast lamb, you pour out the wine, you eat cake and you feast, you celebrate. And Jesus is saying, I am here with them. And so we are going to celebrate. Implicit to the way the Pharisees understood relationship with God is this idea that we have to mourn in order to be with God. That life with God is a life of you know, being down and sad. And Christ is saying, no, life with me is a life of joy. One of the commentators I read said, when with Jesus comes the eruption of the kingdom of God, the presence of the Messiah, the good news of salvation, not dependent on good words. All this means joy, which is something excluded by fasting in the Jewish sense. All of this is joy. There's something new happening here with Christ. Jesus is saying, if you want to, you want to be with God, you have to follow me and ditch your old ways. And that's what he's saying when he goes into this next part. You know, there's this, this contrast between joy and mourning. It's a new way of viewing God. That's where we get into verse 36. No one pairs a piece of, out of a new garment to patch on an old one. So imagine you're going into a store and you find this shirt hanging on a rack and you go, I really like that shirt. I think that shirt looks like me. So you put it on, you try it on and yeah, it matches your eyes. You feel a little bit more comfortable feel like yourself. You feel confident and you say, I'm going to buy this shirt. So you bring it home and you have this brand new shirt. That's exactly like you. And you go and you hang it up in your closet and you notice your old favorite t-shirt your standby, you know, the one that's so worn, it feels like a second skin and more comfortable than your pajamas. And you see that shirt and you notice there is a hole in the armpit. And so you take your new shirt that you just bought and it's so perfect and it's so good and it makes you feel so good. And you cut a piece out of this new shirt and you use that piece to patch the armpit. And then you put your old shirt in the wash. And as you're washing that shirt, the new fabric shrinks and it tears the old shirt's hole even bigger. So now you've ruined your new shirt and you've ruined your old shirt even more. 
This is what it is if you're trying to follow Jesus with the old way. If you're trying to add him on in some way. If you're trying to cut a piece of Jesus out in order, into your own more comfortable way of life. It just doesn't work. And with wineskins, this wineskin part is a little bit harder for me to understand because my wine comes in bottles and cardboard boxes. But it's the same idea. <laughs> wine skin, wines used to be kept in goat skins. And when the wine fermented, the, the goat skin would, would stretch and expand. And so it had to be new skin. Because if it was old skin, all the elasticity was gone and the skin would just tear open. And now you've lost your new wine and you've ruined a perfectly good wineskin. So the same is true with following Christ. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you cannot both follow this Pharisaical understanding of the law and follow Christ. But you are so comfortable in your way of living that you just want to add me on. You you. Drink it, drink your wine, your old wine that you just love so much that you say the old is better and you won't even give the new a chance. Throw out that old shirt, Jesus is saying. There's no room for your legalism here, for your former view of yourself, for your former re- attitude and relationship with God. Jesus says, I am here and I have a new way. You can't combine your way with mine because it won't work. You'll ruin this new shirt that I'm offering you. And that shirt is a relationship joy with me. In the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul addresses a really similar issue that Jesus is dealing with here. When a bunch of Jewish Christians begin to push circumcision, which is a purely Jewish ritual on the Gentile or non-Jewish Christians, Paul gets pretty pissed off. He says, are you trying to be justified by the law when we should only be justified by Christ? And in Galatians 3, 10 through 11, he says, but those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. No one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. Truth is, no matter what we do, if we try to follow the law and be saved by the law, we are not going to be good enough because we're always going to fail. It's the great fear of the perfectionist, knowing that I am going to fail and fearing that I'm not going to be good enough. And Jesus' new way does not do away with the law. Rather, in his perfect life, sacrificial death and resurrection, he completes the law. And so in him, he completes us. So in Jesus, no matter what we've done, whether it's like the tax collectors, we've cheated out our friends and family, if we've betrayed people, if we've turned away from God completely, we are forgiven when we confess our sins and our dependence of God in Christ. The new way is a way of surrender to the mercy of Christ as displayed on the cross. Rather than judging ourselves by our actions, it is acknowledging that we can't do it on our own. I can't do this, but you, Jesus, you can do it in me, and I will let you. And in this state of surrender to Christ, we can begin to clothe ourselves in Christ, identifying ourselves not as less than or striving to be good enough, but as loved by Christ. Brendan Manning 
wrote a book called The Reagan Muffin Gospel, and he said this. My deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ, and I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. And he invites us in another book, Abba's Child. He says, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is illusion. Paul wrote in Galatians 3, 26 to 27, In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. You have put on this new shirt. Clothed in Christ, this is who you are. The life of salvation is not a life of rules and shame, but a life of living life in freedom in Christ. And in New Testament, New Testament letters, the phrase in Christ is used 90 times. So I have a list of these words here. We're going to read through them. In Christ, we are dead to sin, but alive to God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. In Christ, we have been made holy. In Christ, we are sanctified. In Christ, we are being made alive. In Christ, we are brought to fullness, completeness. In Christ, we have freedom. And in Christ, we can stand firm. In Christ, we are brought near to God by the blood of Christ. In Christ, we are all children of God. In Christ, we are forgiven. In Christ, our hearts and minds are guarded by the peace of God. In Christ, we have peace. In Christ, we have faith and love. In Christ, there's no room for the old t-shirt that carries with it the burdens of guilt, sin, and shame. Christ wasn't meant to be a patch to cover a hole. You can't cut out a piece of Jesus to appease your parents, to bring yourself comfort, or make you feel happy for a little while, because that patch is not going to last. But when we clothe ourselves in Christ, all of these things are ours. And in my mind this week, over and over again, I've heard this verse in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. The old is gone, the new is here. This is really hard to grasp because we are creatures of habit. We see ourselves fall back into our old ways over and over again. Talk to someone with an addiction and hear how scary it can be to break free from that drug, pornography, or a person even that they're dependent on. But clothed in Christ, we no longer identify ourselves as perfectionist or failure. We only know that we are in need of Jesus and that in him all of our needs are met. And so we humbly fall at his feet and surrender to his loving care, guidance, and love every moment of every day. But we don't do this on our own effort. We don't just try harder. That would be going back to the old way. We don't try to earn God's favor by reading scripture. You know, I, I got so confused back when I was 15, 16. I carried that confusion with me that I confused times of communion with God with ways that I was pleasing him. I confused times of intimacy with times of, of achievement. We don't do this alone. We can't just put on Christ one day and put on Leah another day. I can't do that. Leah, I am in Christ. You are in Christ. You are. You are. And all of those things are true of you. Brennan Manning, who I quoted before, 
has been a spiritual guide for me through his books. And I got to meet him once in college, and it was the first time I felt like I'd ever been taught grace before in my life. And after he spoke, I went up to him with his, my copy of the Ragamuffin Gospel, and I was crying as he signed it. I'm like, can I have a hug? <laughs> and he didn't know what to do with me, like a 75-year-old man with a 22-year-old girl. And I was embarrassed, <laughs> and I ran away, went back to my dorm, and I just poured over that book. And at the end of the 15th anniversary edition, Manning wrote these words. Perhaps the supreme achievement of the Holy Spirit in the life of the ragamuffins, those who are wholly surrendered to God, is the miraculous movement from self-rejection to self-acceptance. It is not based on therapy or the power of positive thinking. It is anchored in their personal experience of the acceptance of Jesus Christ. They are not saints, but they seek spiritual growth. They accept counsel and constructive criticism with ease. They stumble often, but they do not spend endless hours in self-recrimination. They quickly repent, offering the broken moments of the Lord. Their past has been crucified with Christ and no longer exists, except in the deep recesses of eternity. And this grace that Brennan teaches really has made people uncomfortable. Because how can it be? How can it be that God would forgive us that easily? How can it be that all we have to do is go turn back to him and forget what went before, to put on Christ? But Brennan responds, Brennan responds in this next part, is Jesus enough? Is his love mediated through spouse, children, and friends enough? Must I grasp for something else? Will the incessant clanging of my addictions, wants, and desires steal my Promethean fire? Must I wander again into the far country in search of God knows what? I harbor one legitimate fear, having been given a seat at the wedding feast, the thought of ever going back into the misery and filth, the cold and the darkness of the highways and hedges, the streets and the alleys of a self-centered life, fills me with holy dread. From the depth of my heart, I pray in the words of St. Augustine, Lord Jesus, don't let me lie when I say that I love you and protect me for today I could betray you. Our only hope is in Christ. And Christ invites us to be in him, to clothe ourselves with him, take a seat at his banquet and to be, to have joy, to have life, to have grace in our lives. Both the tax collector and the Pharisee must come to receive the love of Jesus. Both the perfectionist and the failure must come to receive the love and grace of Jesus. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. The new is in you. You are the new. Do you believe that? Who are you? Who do you identify most with? Are you the failure, the tax collector? You've been told over and over again by teachers, parents, family members, friends, you're not going to amount to much. Christ says, I came for you. I came for you. I love you and I gave myself for you. And in Christ, you are whole. I have considered you worthy. I have considered you worthy of my love and my death and my life. 
In you, I will give you everything. In me, you will have everything. You are in Christ. Or are you more like me, the perfectionist? I still want to prove myself. I still want everybody to say, look at her, she's great. (laughs) I'm terrified of failure, still. And I still have that temper. I'm still an angry person who goes around and sees my children who can't seem to figure out potty training and I feel like my house is covered in poop and I'm flipping out (laughs) because it's disgusting. But then I turn and I grieve and I'm in shame because I feel like I am not enough again. But there's this truth that my son memorized for church this morning. It says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And because I am in Christ, I can clothe myself in Christ. I have a new identity. I can repent and be forgiven and move on. I am forgiven. In Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. I'm not who I was. I'm being remade. I am new. And we have this invitation at the cross to come just as we are just as we are, and to clothe ourselves in Christ, to be made new. So again, I ask you, who are you? Who are you? The failure? The perfectionist? There is grace at the cross. There is grace in Jesus. And there is power in the cross, in Christ's death. So come. Come, clothe yourself in Christ. You don't have to keep trying so hard. You can surrender to Christ and he will begin to do that work in you when you turn to him. It is not up to you. It is not up to you. We must acknowledge our need because we can't do this alone, but he can and we can let him. In a moment, we're going to have a time of reflection with a song that's been speaking to me this week. And there will, I think there'll be people in the prayer cave. Yes. (laughs) To pray with us. So if you need prayer, please come forward for that right now. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are completely helpless without you. We are not holy on our own, but you have made us holy in Christ. Lord, I pray that we would begin to see ourselves that way. That we'd be able to see ourselves the way you see us, as loved, beloved children of God, who are clothed in Christ, made holy, worthy, worthy God of your love. Not because of anything we've done, but because you created us in your image. Because you loved us and you came to die for us. Jesus, that's the good news. That's the good news. I pray that we would believe it a little bit more today. Lord, I pray that we would become a little bit further along in trusting you and surrendering ourselves to you. And God, I pray that the words of this song would just wash over us by the power of your spirit and that you would sanctify us a little bit more, heal our wounds, heal our hurts, those feelings of rejection and failure, God. Heal us, Lord, and restore us. It's the glory of your name. Amen.